Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Ashley Theophanides. Um, I'm the chairperson of the Big Data Working Group. Um, Thank you for joining us here today. There are a number of people who RSVP'd who haven't arrived yet, so hopefully um, as they're trying to find parking and make their way here, they won't disrupt the presentation too much. Um, this is the first sessional for 2018, um, and we're very excited about um, the presentation that we're going to have today. So thank you so much, Matt, for the, for the work that you've put in to, to produce this. Just um, in terms of a few housekeeping things, um, ladies and gents are, as you, as you walked in, where those booths are, um, just around the corner. Um, gents is closer to the main reception desk, while ladies is, is closer to the, the garden. Um, emergency exits are behind you, um, those, those main exits there. If there is a fire alarm, so please take note of those. Um, in terms of today's session, um, there will be drinks um, and snacks after the session, so if you can, please please join us for those. And thank you so much for, for being here. Please also look out for the sessional um, that we're planning on, on having in another three months' time, as, as well as the seminar that we had last year. We're planning on having that in September. So thank you for being here, and um, hope you enjoy today. I'm going to hand over to Antoine now. Thanks. Thank you, Ashley. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the Deputy Chair of the Big Data Working Group. My name is Anton Gerber, and it's my privilege to introduce Matt, Matt Zelstra. He's currently working um, as an actuary at uh, Discovery, Discovery the healthcare side, so dealing with all the medical data, hence the, uh, I think the topic as well. Matt's also the data officer of Discovery, so he's got the dubious honor to deal and interact with um, the regulators, Council for Medical Schemes uh, predominantly. And a lot of the um, more practical application of what Matt's going to share with us today actually was informed by that process. You know, so how do you confidentially share and de-identify data in respect of uh, well, sensitive data and personal data? So we're looking forward to that, Matt. Without further ado, thank you very much. Guys, there'll be time for questions afterwards. Okay, so uh, I'll hand the mic to Andre there, and uh, you know, when you have a question, he'll just present. He's also recording this session for, uh, for posterity's sake, so make it count. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anton, and good afternoon to everybody, and welcome. So just to go through the agenda, I'm going to take you through big data in the cloud, what it means, some of the regulatory considerations. Don't worry, I'm not going to go too much into detail of, on Poppy. Balancing privacy and utility, which I think is probably our biggest challenge what this personal information is that we need to protect, some de-identification algorithms. I know actuaries and data scientists love algorithms, so I had to throw that in. Re-identification risks, uh, even once we've done with the algorithms, and then how we mitigate these risks. And then some aspects of how we control access to the data using an attribute-based policy uh, rather than just a straight role-based policy. And then some further challenges in the healthcare around big data. And then finally, considerations around cloud in terms of cost and practicality of implementing cloud. So there's a lot of hype about artificial intelligence driving patient-centered healthcare with a promise of precision medicine tailored for each specific individual. But to achieve this, we need data, and we need lots of it. This includes genomic, environmental, lifestyle, medical history, geospatial, and socioeconomic data. The biggest challenge is that this data resides in different systems, such as hospital information systems, electronic medical records, medical scheme administration records, wearables data records, 
and personal health records like HealthKit from Apple. In addition, this data has many different data types and formats, such as DICOM images for radiology, free text reports from doctors, XML messages from pathology labs, and even genomic variance files, some of which are well-structured, but many of which whose structures do not fit into a predefined data model and are highly variable to the extent that we call them unstructured data. A good example of unstructured data is free text reports that we have to mine for patterns using technologies such as natural language processing and text analytics. Data management and analytic tools available in the big data platforms allow companies to derive actionable intelligence from these large volumes of heterogeneous data. This includes identifying patients with a high risk of an adverse event, assessing the effectiveness of different treatments, spotting emergent trends in population health, and responding faster and more appropriately to clinical situations using empirical evidence. However, collecting, sorting, and extracting value from this data is often too complex and too expensive for organizations to do in-house, in spite of their historic investment in hardware, systems, and analysts. This is largely due to the lack of in-house experience and technical knowledge on how to set up and maintain a big data platform. How many of us are still combining data sets and running machine learning platforms on our laptops? This obviously doesn't scale well, especially with significantly larger data sets such as omics data. This not only duplicates data, but also results in increased privacy risks if the laptop is stolen or hacked. Even where in-house expertise is available, the time it takes to plan and deploy a big data platform in-house often takes months to years and requires an extensive capital outlay. This makes it difficult to respond timelessly to the immediate needs that the data and the analytics, and the analytics can solve. So the right cloud-based big data solution can solve these problems while providing the necessary levels of security, privacy, and data governance to comply with regulations and protect the organization's reputation. <coughs> the organization benefits from economies of scale from dedicated technology and security experts managing the platform together with state-of-the-art data governance tools. In addition, it is simple for the organization to scale its big data analytics by just hiring more storage and processing power or descaling quickly after the completion of a project. Data security and privacy remain top concerns, particularly when we are storing patients' to health data off-site, and often blocks the adoption of cloud solutions for healthcare organizations. Balancing privacy with utility of data is always a challenge, even when data is kept in-house, but regulations such as HIPAA, GDPR, and POPI require stringent protection of personal health information. Personal data should always be kept private and confidential, until it is required by a complete stranger immediately. So Poppy is a legislation designed to protect personal information which is processed by both public and private bodies. Everyone who collects, stores or uses personal information must comply with the conditions required for processing personal information. Personal information may only be collected for the specific purpose of providing services to a particular person such as a doctor's patient or medical scheme beneficiary. If information is collected from another source, then re reasonable steps need to be taken to inform the person of this, including the source of the information and the purpose it is being collected for. Any personal information that you hold needs to be protected from loss, damage, unauthorized destruction, and unlawful access using reasonable technical and organizational measures. But what is reasonable? This depends on the nature of the information and the risks that arise from unlawful access to this information. Risks should be regularly identified and assessed so that the appropriate safeguards are developed and enhanced over time. The organization needs to ensure that not only those people who have been given consent to access the, per the personal information can do so, 
This includes providing unique usernames and passwords to users, ensuring that passwords are of adequate strength, that multiple people don't use the same password and username, and that there is an agreement in place between the user and the person to access the data, which may be time limited. The organization needs to ensure that the data is backed up regularly to prevent a total loss of data in the event of hardware failure or data corruption. Access to data, including printed copies, needs to be strictly controlled, including while being printed, not being left unattended, not locking away hard copies in filing cabinets, and leaving PCs logged in. Any reasonable suspicious suspicion of unlawful activity needs to be reported immediately in writing to the information regulator, and the person or people affected need to be notified. This notification must include sufficient information to allow the person or people to take protective measures and should include possible consequences, intended measures to prevent these in future, and the disclosure of who accessed the information. Failure to meet these requirements of Poppy include a fine of up to 10 million rand and 10 years in prison. So who are these bad guys who are after all our data? A study from IBM found that 60% of reported data breaches come from people inside our organization. And some of these breaches are not even malicious in nature, but rather inadvertent actors. A recent Harvard Business Review study found that 70% of employees have access to data that they shouldn't even be, be able to see. The methods discussed in the rest of the presentation for cloud privacy and security are equally applicable to your on-site data platforms. Unfortunately, there will always be some trade-off between privacy and utility by, uh, of the data. As actuaries, we want to mitigate the risks of privacy breaches while still allowing sufficient utility of the data for pricing, predictive modeling, and insight discovery. We often need at least one unique identifier that is consistent across different data sets so that we can combine data sets and increase its analytical value. We typically use personal information to create these unique keys and map one data set to another. I'm sure that you've had to use some of this personal information to match records in your own data and will attest to the usefulness of this information in data matching exercises. But this is often linked to our most private information, such as our medical history and current conditions. So how do we mitigate the risks of someone gaining access to the sense of information using our personal information, especially when it sits in the cloud? Some of the personal information here is obvious, such as your national identity number, but some of it is less obvious, like your IP address and your mobile, mobile phone device number. We need to protect all of this information so that nobody can get access to our private information. And this is where we get to the de-identification algorithms. So fortunately, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, uh, in terms of their safe harbor rules, have issued guidance on methods for de-identification of protected health information. But this often involves removing all of the PHI identifiers from the data. De-identification is not actually a single technique of removal, but a collection of approaches, algorithms, and tools that can be applied to different kinds of data with varying levels of effectiveness. Removing some of the identifiers may be acceptable, such as name and surname, as long as we have another unique identifier to link different data sets together. Removing all of the PHI data would render the data useful only in its own context. We could replace identifiers with pseudo-identifiers that are only valid for a specific study and a data set that cannot be linked back to the original identifier or other data sets. This can be achieved using a secure hashing algorithm or something like SHA-3, in this case an, a, a health number is run through the hashing algorithm and it produces a 256-bit hash value. So any length or data type can be run through an SHA-3 algorithm producing an irreversible cryptographic hash. But this limits incremental data updates and the ability to add more data sets to the analysis. 
So ideally, we want a reusable pseudo-identifier. Here we can use the AES encryption algorithm, which takes a secret key and uses a cryptographic algorithm to create an irreversible cryptographic hash, unless, of course, you have the key. Often, we don't need to use complex algorithms, but can instead abstract or group information at higher levels. Dates can be generalized to year and month, or bands of years. Numbers can be grouped into ranges or buckets. Similarly, truncation can reduce the specificity of the information. For example, removing the last digit of a postal code retains some utility, but generalizes the location further. Often we know specific details about someone, such as when they were admitted to hospital and what date they had specific procedures. And we can use this information to find them in the, the data set without looking for PHI. The process of perturbation introduces a random offset to dates in the data. So the re-identification risks. Now we think we've used these algorithms and we've removed all the identifiers and replaced them with these hash values. Our data should be fine. Well, Latanya Sweeney re-identified the medical records of the governor of Massachusetts, William Weld, as part of her MIT graduate work in 1990. The state of Massachusetts had distributed a de-identified data set of insurance reimbursements records for employees of the state who had been admitted to hospital. The employees' names had been removed completely from the data to protect their privacy, but their birthday, gender, and zip code were left in the data set for statistical analysis. Sweeney knew that the Governor Weld had been admitted to hospital and purchased the Cambridge Voter List for $20, which contained Weld's date of birth, gender, and zip code. Fortunately for her and unfortunately for Weld, there was only one record that matched this information. Under current HIPAA standards, the data set should only have contained his year of birth and the first three digits of his zip code with his gender. This would have reduced the probability of finding a unique match substantially. Re-identification risk is measured by finding unique combinations of what's called quasi-personal identifiers in a de-identified data set. Quasi-personal identifiers are indirect identifiers which require either some background information on a person or additional information that can be used to probabilistically re-identify a person. For example, if someone knew of someone who was admitted to a particular hospital for a particular condition, such as a gunshot wound, on a particular day, together with their age and gender, they could potentially find a limited number of people matching the, that criteria. Using the de-identified unique identifier that we as analysts require to link our datasets together, the additional records for these people could be reviewed to determine which individual was most likely the person of interest. Then, their entire medical history and current conditions would be known to that attacker. So these are some of the quasi-personal identifiers, but there are many, and many of them are difficult to spot and to identify. According to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, researchers have taken various approaches for computing and reporting on re-identification risk. Re-identification can occur in a number of different ways. If an attacker knows a person is in the data set, there is a risk that that person can be re-identified. This is called a prosecutor scenario. Often the attacker merely wants to make the point that someone in the data set can be re-identified with the goal of discrediting the de-identification process and the organization. The risk that at least one person can be re-identified is called the journalist scenario. The proportion of people that can be re-identified is called the marketing scenario. And its goal is really to find people that it can market its product to based on a de-identified data set with some attributes that it finds meaningful for its product. It is sometimes possible to distinguish a person's identity from the results of the same analysis conducted with and without the individual, and this is called a differential identifiable scenario. A few causes of re-identification are when identifying information is inadvertently left in the data set, 
The pseudonym is possible to reverse as it is derived from the identity information using a weak algorithm and not a strong cryptographic hash. And when it's possible to link data from an independent data set with personal information to, to a de-identified data set. So this is our example of a de-identified database. These are people, superheroes with gene mutations. And they've been de-identified in terms of removing their superhero name, but leaving in their gender, year of birth, nationality, and gene mu mutation. If we look at a public database, under the prosecutor scenario, we know that Peter Parker's data is in the, the de-identified data set. We look up the information about Peter Parker in the publicly available data set, and we search for that information for similar people in the de-identified data set. In this case, there's only one possible match, and we confirm that Peter Parker has a gene mutation and is most likely Spider-Man. <laughs> the journalist scenario is similar, but the attacker doesn't know for sure that the person in, is in the de-identified data set. Here, the attacker uses a public, public data set that has all individuals that could possibly be in the de-identified de data set. The attacker is looking to match individuals from the public data that the de-identified data, but is not particularly concerned with who they are able to identify. This is done using equivalence classes, which is the table on the bottom right. So this is just groupings of, of the same features of people in the de-identified data set. So if you look here, there's one in three chance of correctly identifying a record that's part of the equivalence class, because there's those three people that all belong to the same equivalence class. With the marketer scenario, the attacker may wa wants to re-identify as, as many individuals as possible, regardless of the overall accuracy, as this is used for marketing purposes and will just be ignored if the individual is not the ideal target in the de-identified data set. The marketer risk is based on the probability of matching a record from an equivalence class in the de-identified data set with one in the same equivalence class in their own data set. The expected number of records that the marketer can properly identify in the de-identified data set is shown as the expected correct matches. So here he wants to ideally match 1.62 of the de-identified data so that he can target his product at them. Interesting use cases. So it was shown that user ratings on the Internet Movie Database could be linked back to de-identified data set that was released by Netflix as part of their competition for a prize for members to watch and rank movies. They released about 100 million um, rankings of, of movies by members. This is possible mostly for reviewers who watch less popular films, but once matched to their IMDb profile, then their entire Netflix movie history could be known for their username, usually identifying them on the IMDb database. This resulted in severe bad reputation and lawsuits for Netflix. From a healthcare perspective, pathology laboratory test results from 60,000 known patients were matched back to records in a de-identified biomedical research database to uniquely identify people in the data database. Between five and seven specific tests resulted in uniquely identifying individuals between 34% and 99% of the time. Once individuals were re-identified, the entire medical history could be discovered. A de-identified de collection of credit card tra transactions was shown to only require four distinct points in space and time to uniquely identify 90% of the individuals in the 1.1 million sample. Similarly, people and their vehicles could be identified using records of location and times that the person or ve vehicle visited. This is called mobility traces. Even when the data was generalized to the hour and location to the nearest cell tower, it only required four observations of a person's location at different times to uniquely identify 95% of individuals in the trace data of 1.5 million people.
These space and time points could also be collected quite easily through credit card transactions and photographs posted online. In 2014, the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission released a data set containing a record of every New York City taxi ride in 2013, 173 million in total. The data only included a 32-digit alphanumeric identifier based on the taxi's medallion number, the start point in time and the end point in time, the amount paid and the tip paid to the taxicab. A data scientist was able to match timestamp photographs of celebrities entering or leaving taxis in which the medallion number was clearly visible. With this data, he was able to determine the end point, amount paid, and tip amount for two celebrity tips. Uh, a journalist was able to identify another nine celebrity tips. So, one of our roles that actuaries can play in the adoption of a cloud-based big data solution is to understand the risk of privacy breaches and determine strategies to mitigate these risks. Understanding the data we work with and its sensitivity makes us pivotal in the process of labeling which data is PHI, QPI, and non-PI. We can advise on the de-identification strategy that balances the need for individual privacy but retains the utility of data, such as hashing unique identifiers and generalizing dates. Before uploading a data set, we can determine the prob probability of re-identifying an individual using the data considered as QPI. If this probability is above an acceptable risk threshold, then we need to assess whether removing these records or generalizing some of the QPI fields will have a material impact on the intended analysis of the data set. Again, balancing the need for privacy with retaining as much data utility as possible. We can do this by ranking the analytical importance of the QPI fields. An actuary could therefore perform the role of an expert determination of re-identification risk to the HIPAA requirements. Actuaries can also assist in defining the attributes of the data analysts and the data itself that would determine which types of data they should have access to and for how long. In the release and forget model, the de-identified data is released to the public, typically published on the internet, and is virtually impossible to recall this data. A legally binding document agreement is entered into between the data provider and the analyst in some cases. This typically prohibits the attempted re-identification redistribution of data, but depends on the adherence to that agreement. The enclave model, which is quite interesting, restricts the export of the data and requires the analysis to be done on the data in a segregated enclave by sending instructions to the database. In terms of attribute-based access, basically there's attributes that relate to the data or metadata for the data and the attributes that apply to a person or an analyst or a researcher or a physician. Combining these two attributes and creating rules or policies around them, we could define who has access to what data when. So once all the analysis and machine learning has been done and we have a lead table of members, for example, with a high probability of an adverse health event, we need to relay this information to people who can intervene and try to prevent it. Traditional role-based access control consists of users in their role having certain privileges, but this becomes very cumbersome to manage with many exception users and custom data sets. Attributes-based access control determines who has access to data using predefined policies that compare the attributes of the person requesting the data and the attributes of the data themselves itself. So for example, physicians with consent to see a patient's medical history, the physician attributes, can access the data with attributes PHI, QPI, and non-PI based on poppy compliant policy. Analysts from the US cannot see PHI data and will instead use the de-identified data in, in accordance with the HIPAA policy. Analysts from Europe can see PHI data in accordance with the GDPR policy. 
an employee of a health insurance company with an attribute of claims assessor can see the PHI, QPI, and non-PI data in accordance with the organization's policy and compliant with POPI. A researcher will only be able to see generalized or truncated QPI data. An employee with an attribute of an HIV case manager is the only employee who can access PHI, QPI, and non-PI data for records associated with the HIV condition. Some of the challenges in healthcare big data is that medical records contain a significant amount of unstructured free text. This makes it difficult to find PI data in the text for de-identification. Natural language processing is being used to try and find this PI data, but some diseases are named after people and are not identified as people at all, such as Bell's palsy and Addison's disease. Medical imagery consists of header information or metadata in the DICOM format, as well as the pixel data for the image. Either data may be used to uniquely identify an individual, as the DICOM header may contain the patient's name or other QPIs, and the pixels may contain a photogra photographic information or other biometric information of the patient. An example is an injury to a person's face, together with facial recognition software to identify that person. Direct uh, identifiers may even be added to the image, such as handwriting the patient's name on the image, which they can then be extracted using optical character recognition. Some genetic sequences Sequences are highly individualistic, and more and more people are being added to databanks with the express purpose of identifying them. A 15-year-old was able to identify his anonymous, anonymous sperm donor father using genealogical triangulation. This involved him paying 289 rand for a DNA testing, then matching his Y chromosome to an online service called Family Tree DNA, which found two potential matches. Using the sperm donor's date and place of birth provided to his mother, he was able to match it to his biological father. Exact geo-coordinates for work, home, and frequently visit sites are strong QPIs, where it was shown that only four mobility traces were needed to identify 95% of indiv individuals. Generalizations such as aggregating to magisterial districts and truncation such as removing street address are two methods used currently to reduce this risk, but they may not be adequate in sparsely populated areas. Even accelerometer data contains information that can be used to infer positions and re-identify individuals as long as four positions are found. So what should we consider when we put it in the cloud? Well, we should just put it all in the cloud because some cloud platform guru said that it's the way of the future and you'll get left behind if you don't. Let's look at some of the advantages and disadvantages of moving data and analytics to the cloud and determine what and when to put in the cloud. So most advantages relate to the reducing costs of building infrastructure and hiring full-time experts to manage this data infrastructure. Moving to the cloud shifts your capital and ex expertise expenditure to an operational and outsource expenditure that benefits from economies of scale. Even security, which is often the main reason to be cautious of adopting a cloud strategy, is now considered by many to be better in the cloud than on-premises, as cloud vendors have the most to lose and benefit from economies of scale to hire the best security experts in the business. Since you only pay for what you use, cloud solutions provide a flexible cost model and you could start small and then scale up as demand changes and then scale back down quickly, which is known as elasticity. But what are some of the disadvantages? Moving large data sets into the cloud can be very time consuming unless an organization invests in an expensive data pipeline to increase upload speeds. Even minor delays in scoring models in the cloud and receiving the model outputs via download may be too much for a large organization that needs to provide sub-second response times. Keeping on-premises data in sync with data in the cloud can also be challenging unless the data is actually generated in the cloud.
Section 72 of the Poppy Act addresses requirements for personal data stored outside of the Republic of South Africa. In a nutshell, this requires the regulations in the countries where the data is being stored and processed to be at least as stringent as Poppy. Even when data is put on a local cloud presence, it may be backed up across multiple international cloud servers. Assessing where this data is replicated, uh, together with what the relevant uh, regulations are and the strengths of the HIPAA and GDPR relevant to Poppy can be quite tricky. Even if cloud solutions offer state-of-the-art security and privacy, they make themselves big targets for determined hackers and malicious data, data, ident data identity thieves. An organization can actually increase its risk of reputational damage by adopting a, cl a cloud solution even when their own security may be weaker, purely by putting a bigger bullseye target on their back. One of the biggest questions is which platform do you choose? Do you run a Hadoop database on Amazon EC2, a Cosmos database on Microsoft Azure, Bigtable on Google Cloud, or IBM Analytics on the IBM Cloud? You're not only choosing your cloud, but you're also choosing your data platform. Microsoft and Amazon already offer data migration service almost for free, and other vendors are expected to follow suit to allow people to chop and change from platforms. But it is similar to the, the question that you used to ask whether you choose an Oracle or Microsoft SQL Server data platform. Even though costs are flexible and scale on demand, if you're not careful with the planning of your data mining, these costs can add up very quickly as you access large amounts of compute power to fit hundreds or thousands of machine learning algorithms to your big data and the quest for the perfect fit. Understanding which machine learning techniques to use and where to draw the line in terms of model fits are important to rein in the costs. So when then? When does it make sense to adopt a cloud strategy? There's some obvious answers. So if you want to merge your data with third-party data such as social media, weather, and financial market data, then it makes sense as most of this data already lives in the cloud. It costs significantly less and takes a lot less time to upload a few terabytes of your structured internal data to the cloud than to download several petabytes of multi-structured data from the cloud. Cloud vendors also often have already prepackaged data for you to use on their big data platforms. If you use cloud-hosted applications from an external service provider, then much of your source transactional data is already sitting in the cloud, and you may already have accumulated large volumes over time. Often these vendors also have partnerships with big data cloud vendors to provide analytics you may need. If you are monitoring customer sentiment from aggregated social media data, it makes sense to do all the filtering in the cloud instead of downloading all the social media to a local presence and then trying to filter through it. Even if you have a big data platform on-premises, it may make sense to use the cloud to address new applications that are not suited to your on-premises solutions, such as geospatial analysis and elastic data science sandboxing. An on-demand service may be more robust and cost-effective. In fact, it may be the only feasible solution if you need petabyte-scale, real-time, streaming, multi-structured big data capabilities ASAP. If you have short-turnaround, short-term data science projects that require an exploratory data sandbox that's bigger than normal on-premises solutions can handle, then you can quickly spin up a cloud-based solution just for the duration of the project, limiting the costs and over-investments over the long term. So those are what I would consider important factors when looking at big data solutions in the cloud. I've referenced some of the, the papers that I've, I've used in the research, and I'd gladly hand over to questions now. Please, if you do have questions, raise your hand and a roaming mic will come to you before I can answer them. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>
Now we know who you are and where you're going. Three more points. <laughs> Good. So maybe just a comment from my side. Um, Matt, thank you very much. I mean, this was a, quite a nice deep dive into a topic which, I mean, I've attended quite a few uh, poppy kind of related things and they always end up being in the legal space, you know, with uh, kind of that slide, the 10 years, the 10 million, but I think your presentation gives us a lot of more practical angles to, uh, and, and I think we underestimate the extent of which uh, certainly are the bad guys, as you call them, are, are willing to go. So I don't know who, uh, who of you have uh, been keeping up with uh, Trump and Trump in the news and, and all of the rest. Um, Cambridge Analytica, does that ring a bell at all? <coughs> so I think in part also a cautionary tale, you know, just in terms of it might not be what you are doing or what you are um, um, basically permitting, but also what your friends are basically doing just by virtue of being linked to your friends. As Republicans, you kind of get sucked into this kind of dragnet um, scenario. And I think it's a good example of one of the examples you mentioned as well, where data is released for a specific research purpose and ends up in the hands of someone quite different. So thanks for, for highlighting that. Thank you so much. Um, my question is maybe a little bit off topic, but I'd, I'd like your view on it, is um, within um, the data privacy space, specifically looking at Poppy, I mean, there's often the question about who does the data really belong to and, and how can it be used um, besides the aspects of data, data privacy. So if we look at the, the healthcare space, as a patient, I would, for example, go and see a doctor. Um, in order for me to be able to claim, it has to go via an administrator through to my scheme. The scheme pays it. That somehow may end up on the Council for Medical Schemes database for monitoring purposes and then somehow may be released in an annual report. Um, I know that um, some, um, some jurisdictions and some very innovative entrepreneurs is looking at the ability to, to um, empower patients to keep that data to themselves and almost sell it back. Um, what are your thoughts and, and how do you see that evolving within the broader space of, of data privacy um, and the way in which that may actually end up on the cloud? It's a very interesting question. I mean, the biggest question I think you started with is who does this data belong to? Because I mean, the, the doctor makes the diagnosis and prescribes the treatment, but then the patient has that information and now that's his information that he needs to follow. He submits that to the medical scheme and now they approve funding for it. So the data kind of flows between these various entities and it doesn't necessarily belong to a specific person at in a point in time, except within Poppy where it is deemed the personal information or at least the personal identifiers linked to that treatment and diagnostic data that belongs to the person. So their personal information belongs to them. So if you anonymize it, you don't need to get consent to share that data. So in other words, you know, it doesn't belong to the member and they don't need to give consent to, to share that data for research purposes. If you need to share their personal identifiers or if there's a risk that they can be re-identified through their quasi-personal identifiers, then they need to have conform informed consent. Similarly, the, the doctor who makes notes, clinical notes, that data belongs to him and he puts his personal information against that information. So if he provides that information and 
he, you know, we anonymize his, his name. In my view, that data no longer belongs to him. It can be used for research purposes. Unless it gets linked back to him for a specific purpose, then it belongs to him again. I know it's not a very simple answer to your question. It, it really depends as to what you want to use the data for. So for research purposes, it doesn't necessarily belong to the patient. But it is interesting that if you do have the information and you have the ability to share it, you can effectively then sell it. So, I mean, a lot of work has been done on the health information exchange to put data on the health information exchange with the, the main aim of improving the quality of care that the patients receive from doctors if they span medical medic med many medical schemes over time or private patients at some point in time. So I think the, the point is there is, is there needs to be strong mechanisms to lock down who's allowed to see the data for what purposes when. And then it, it becomes a question of who needs to give the consent for that. So if we're accessing clinician notes, does the doctor need to give consent to the patient or to the funder or to another provider? Um, so it is, it is complex in terms of who can see what and when. So I don't think it's a simple question of the data always belongs to the patient, unfortunately. Hi, Michael here. Do you know if anyone starts to de-identify the 80-20 data with the social media? Because there's quite a lot of data there that's been used in the past. Uh, the source. Uh, actually, I actually don't know. What, what is the source? Uh, I think 8020 is the, they package it up. Um, but I think it's, I can't remember who the survey is. I think it's a government source. Um, I can't remember the, the name. Does anyone else know? It's like there's l quite a lot of databases on there. I think so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, so I think it's quite. It's I think it's an annual survey of households, and I think it's got quite a lot of you know reading. What you know, what what newspapers you read, and whether you've got a TV in your. Um, so I think it's 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 kind of um, um, figure out the demographics of South Africa. But kind of listening to your presentation, I think if you use social media, I think you'd be able to identify those people in those surveys quite quite easily. I would think. So just just a kind of thought. I thought. Matt, sorry, can I ask you regarding healthcare, as a healthcare professional? The lady has just asked you in front about to whom does the data belong. As a healthcare professional registered with HPCSA, all information that you gather regarding the patient belongs to the patient, and you're only the custodian of that information. So the only time that the healthcare practitioner is allowed to share that information is with the consent of the patient or by a court of law, etc., etc. Yeah, of course. But then I think our concerns from the healthcare providers is presently is what is the quality of the data that you capture from medical practitioners. And a lot of that quality, as you know, is maybe used by ICD-10 coding which is not true at the moment because it's manipulated. People have got recipes of ICD-10 that they do regarding billing processes. So if I would use ICD-10 code, not me as per, per se, per person, um, <laughs> you don't know who I am yet. <laughs> but the main problem with that is a lot of the data that's been captured presently, it's not true data. My other concern is that medical aides presently or medical administrators are uh, capturing data that's got no clinical intelligence in it. In the end, a lot of the actuaries sitting here probably working out strategies of payment for 
whether it's for providers, whether it's for certain conditions, are sitting with flawed information. And I can assure you that the billing data, for instance, provided by physiotherapists are not true billing data because they're restricted by rules. So, for instance, if you've done four different codes, you're only allowed to bill for three. So what the actuary would see is three treatment codes and there's no outcome, clinical outcome in the end. My other concern is that presently data that is by chance captured by so-called medical administrators is my personal information as a practitioner. I have not consented to anybody to capture my data. I'm a data subject and I should be protected by Poppy. And now you're doing uh, practice profiling on patients or not patients on practitioners. So uh, I think people need to know that's working with the data, that the outcome that they have at present as far as medical data is concerned is seriously flawed. Hi, I just need to get some advice. So we've been working with Health Professions Council and uh, really struggling to get personalized data, but have discovered that on the website you can just search for all the specialists and the names, surnames, addresses, and their specialty are all there. If it's av publicly available like that, is it still, does it still require puppy? You know, are, are we in breach or who, was whoever put that database together in breach? Hi, Simon. Um, first off, I'll just be controversial and say I think Poppy's pointless. But um, I mean, your privacy is dead. Forget about it. Uh, but what about what do you do about historical data? Because I mean, you know, this Poppy came in at a certain point, but there's years and decades of historical data that is out there. You can't protect that anymore unless you know about it and can do something retrospectively about it. So if you've got a website for example, that publishes a lot of personal information, you now know that you need to lock that down and get informed consent before you can publish that information. Anyone else? There you go. Ray, I'm coming to you. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> Ray, would you, would you, I've got a question out of left field. Um, w would you kind of speculate on the possibility if data was just freely available? I mean, you can get data if you want to. Uh, that, that seems to happen all the time. So. Is it going to be possible that in the future we're not going to be so concerned about everybody knowing everything about you? I mean, if all the data was available, what, you know, would it be of any advantage to anybody? Uh, from what I understand with Poppy, um, there's a limited time that you're supposed to keep the data. You're not supposed to keep the data as long as um, the original intention, and you're not supposed to reprocess that data unless it's in line with the reason that you originally collected it. But I know that yeah, I mean, storage is cheap these days, so why not just, uh, I feel like the temptation is there, and I don't know if, if we just, well, the temptation is there just to keep the data indefinitely, and later on we realize, oh, actually, we can use this data to do X, Y, and Z. It's kind of in line with what, why we originally collected. Um, where does the, uh, how do we approach that? Um, is that, is, is there a boundary there? Um, where is it? I just want to know, uh, let everyone know that Google is fully puppy compliant. So if you're interested in the cloud, come talk to one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've been identified by a marketer. marketer. <laughs> Thanks for that, though. <laughs> a little known company called Google. <laughs>
Good, guys. Um, any final observations, questions? Really want to give everyone an opportunity. Good. That it. Thank you very much for your contribution.